Welcome back, Warriors. Tansei Sego Anibuju, Queen Deluisi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, practices, laws, and governing structures. It's also about living, asserting, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And one of the ways in which we've maintained our collectives as clans, villages, houses, districts, and nations is through our relations, our relations with one another, including our ancestors and future generations, as well as our relations with other living beings that share these lands, including the plants, birds, fish, and animals. Our peoples have existed on Turtle Island from time immemorial in a rich diversity of nation-based languages, cultures, practices, and identities. The ways in which we identify as Mi'kmaq, Shekwepmik, Gayankahaga is far more connected, meaningful, and complex than colonial concepts of race, blood, or genetic material. And today, we are so lucky to have with us Dr. Kim Tallbear. She's an internationally renowned expert on issues related to Indigenous identities, race, and the ways in which science and technology interacts with and impacts our conceptions of Indigeneity. Dr. Tallbear is an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta, whose academic education includes a BA in Community Planning from the University of Massachusetts at Boston, Master's in Community Planning from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and a PhD in History of Consciousness from the University of California at Santa Cruz. And today she holds the prestigious Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience, and the Environment. She has a ton of publications on the issue of genetics and Indigenous identity, and specifically the commercialization of research and technologies in the genetic testing industry, and the implications it has for both tribal and First Nations citizenship in Canada and the U.S. Her work raises some very serious issues for our nations, and I'll be sure to post links to her website afterwards so that you can check out all of her publications. They are critical reading. So do you see what I mean? She's exactly the person we need to talk to about some of these issues facing Indigenous peoples today in relation to our identities, our cultures, and our relations. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kim Tallbear. Hi, thank you for having me on. Oh, I'm, I'm just so excited. I've followed your work for so long. I've cited it in my own work, and it's just a thrill to have you here today because we are facing some pretty significant issues around indigeneity. But before we get into the conversation, maybe you would like to introduce yourself in the way that you like to. Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm from the U.S. originally. Uh, I'm a citizen of the Sisseton-Wapitan-Oyate, which is a Dakota nation in um, 
the eastern part of uh, what's now South Dakota, but I'm also descended from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. That's where the name Tall Bear comes from. Uh, and I was raised on another Dakota reservation, the Flandreau Santee Sioux Tribe Reservation, also in eastern South Dakota. And, every, and people between Flandreau and Sisseton, where I'm enrolled, are, are uh, all related. And then I also uh, grew up in part in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. So that's all Dakota homelands. Um, and I've been in Canada for a little over five years now, five and a half years at the University of Alberta. So happy to be here. And we're so lucky to have you, in fact, because you've done such amazing work. And, and that's actually where I want to start. I mean, you've had already an extensive career in academics from your numerous you know, academic degrees to your positions at various universities. And I'm wondering if you'd like to share a little bit about your personal journey through your education and these academic positions. Sure. Um, well, I started out as a planner doing community and environmental planning, and I chose that career path for a couple of reasons. I mean, my mom is a planner. She's an Indigenous planner who's worked for our tribe uh, and many tribes across the United States. She's worked for uh, national tribal organizations. Um, she's also worked for the um, Democratic Party doing uh, Indian country uh, kind of campaign work. And my mom doesn't have a degree, though. I mean, she was a, a single mother of four children, although my grandmother's very much helped raise us. Um, but she just started doing uh, community organizing, grant writing, activism in the Twin Cities in the 1970s. And so I grew up as the daughter of a Native planner who worked on both reservation and urban Indigenous issues. And so I saw it as a way to uh, do something interesting career-wise. My mom's a writer. She's a thinker. She's the one of the formative intellectuals that I cite, even though she's not an academic. But also, like a lot of Native people, um, I'm a first-generation university student. Uh, and Often we go to university because we want to give back to our communities, but we also want to have some kind of way to to live um, a life that's a little bit more economically <laughs> fruitful, right? <laughs> and planning seemed like a good way to do that. Most of the Native academics I meet didn't plan on being academics. Many of us kind of fell into it because we realized we could we could do research and we enjoyed research. Being a planner is being a researcher. The difference between being a planner and an academic, a standard academic, is that you do research for community change explicitly when you're doing planning. And that's why I went into that. It just seemed to, to make so much sense, both for me personally and in terms of my um, role in community. Um, and then I... I was working on a as a contractor to the Department of Energy. I did a lot of environmental policy work with both the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and on environmental issues related to nuclear waste management. And that's how I got uh, kind of affiliated with energy. Um, and back around 2000, DOE, the Department of Energy, started funding research into the Human Genome Project. And so I went from sitting around the table with a lot of tribal regulators and leaders and tribal environmental scientists and thinking about environmental issues and nuclear waste management issues to suddenly thinking about um, research on indigenous genomes. Uh, and so I, I was totally unprepared for those conversations. I was fascinated, you know, with the conversations that brought up notions of biological essentialism, with people's questions around genetics. And I realized that 
if I was really going to think about those issues, I had to go back to school. Uh, and I, so I went back to do a PhD, which I never planned on doing. But again, I did it because I wanted to understand a critical issue for Indigenous communities. And in the mid-1990s to late to early 2000s, there was a lot of Indigenous pushback around the world to the Human Genome Diversity Project. And I suddenly found myself in the middle of these conversations. And I went to graduate school to write the book that became Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science. And then I planned to come back out and go back to work for tribal organizations or federal agencies. But I discovered that I'm a better academic than I am a fed. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I got here. <laughs> but I'm grateful for that kind of uh, practical background. You know, it really continues to inform why and how I research. Yeah, well, it's so funny because I have the same experience, you know, being the first generation going to university and and you just kind of, your path kind of unravels in front of you. And, you know, mm -hmm. I was also a fed, <laughs> but yeah, I, do, yeah. I find I make a much better academic and community um, activist than a fed all the way. So I hear you on that one. Yeah, you don't have a lot of choice of my, so talking to my sister, she's an attorney in DC <laughs> for energy. <laughs> and uh, we, she's like, you get to do, think about whatever you want. I said, yeah, Jody, that's why I got a PhD. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, that's great. And it's such an interesting path, you know, to be so heavily influenced by your mother who is, you know, working in the community. Like, you know, so many of us are impacted by family members and what they did before us. And then to, to kind of transition into science and technology out of necessity, kind of like how, you know, I went from Native studies to law out of that same necessity, I was being pulled into conversations around our rights and negotiations, but I didn't know the law. And yeah, so, yeah. you know, it was like, okay, well, looks like I'm going to have to do this. It's kind of like a tool in your arsenal to be able to, you know, work more effectively in those areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, we need to know how settlers are doing things, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to do our yeah. uh, counterintelligence. Yeah. Um, and so, one of the things I also noticed about your career is that you've actually worked in many different universities, including, you know, not just the United States here in Canada, but also in Japan. I mean, what was that like? Uh, you mean moving around or working yeah, in Japan? Yeah. And, and the different ways in which universities operate and, yeah. and welcome Indigenous peoples. Yeah, I could talk about this all day. And this is a big part of why I eventually came to Canada. So I was trying to figure out, I was living on my reservation with my uh, co-parent and my daughter um, back in 2000. Uh, four, five, six, uh, when I was finish, finishing my dissertation. And I did not plan to go on the job market. I planned to stay at home for a while because my uh, husband was working uh, for our tribe. He's non-native. And po the politics got weird. You know how that is, right? Mm -hmm. And I also got a job offer from Arizona State University. That was my first job because um, I worked pretty closely with Rebecca Sosi, who works on indigenous bioethics. So she's a law professor down at ASU. And I just, you know, ASU was a great place. So I went, um, but I'm not a desert dweller. And, and mm -hmm. so that, so ASU is a great institution. There's like the University of Alberta, we had about 1,500 Indigenous grad or, uh, students. We had nearly uh, three dozen faculty, I think, across campus. It's, but I'm not a desert dweller. I'm a prairie person, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I was like, oh, so I need Native people, but landscape matters. 
And then my husband was working, ended up working for a tribe and uh, doing environmental stuff in California. And then I got offered a postdoc there at Berkeley. And we went because we could both have jobs, you know, the two body job problem. And I had gone to graduate school in California, but I never was very happy in California. And I just, you know, I didn't know, is it me? Is it the place? Well, I discovered after being in Berkeley for five years, I really don't care to live on the coast. I, the, the, it never thunders. It's hardly ever any light. Well, there is lightning, but there's like no thunder. They don't have the violent prairie thunderstorms that we have. And I was going through a process of discovering two things. I need to have big skies. I need to have a flat landscape. Uh, and I also need a lot of indigenous people around. Mm-hmm. Berkeley didn't offer that. I mean, you are so erased in the Bay Area as an indigenous person. It's so erased and fetishized. There's all this new age BS. It was the same way in Massachusetts. I was there for seven years. And uh, again, total indigenous erasure, which is why Elizabeth Warren got away with her pretendianism at Harvard. I mean, it's really extreme there. So I've lived on both coasts. I've worked and traveled all over the U.S. Um, and I so so California taught me, okay, I can't. I can't live here. So I went to Texas, which is prairie. Um, and I like Texas. I went to, to a couple of years of undergrad there, actually, before I went out to Massachusetts. Uh, I'm a big country music fan. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's got uh, prairie skies. But again, not a lot, lot of indigenous presence. And University of Alberta had been trying to recruit me since 2009. But my co-parent was like, uh, no way in heck am I leaving <laughs> San Francisco or Berkeley for Edmonton. <laughs> And so anyway, our lives changed and, you know, we're great co-parents, but we're not in a normative marriage anymore. And so I'm like, I'm going to Canada because they regrouped and and got a CRC for me in 20, um, uh, I guess they offered it to me in 2014 and I came up here in 2015. And I know everybody, a lot of people and my friends in California, the East Coast, all these cosmopolitan places are like, what, what are you doing? I'm like, you guys forget I'm from South Dakota. You know, and Edmonton is like St. Paul in the 80s before gentrification. I'm comfortable here. I, there's na- like, I'll be driving downtown Edmonton. The native family walks across the street. I'm like, I love it here. We're not summer <laughs> race, you know, we're like everywhere. Um, and then the University of Alberta Native Studies, or we have, I think, the most indigenous faculty in one unit anywhere in Canada, probably North America. They, we have tremendous resources compared to other indigenous studies programs, I think. Um, I just love that I'm surrounded by indigenous and non Indigenous colleagues, allies who support what we're doing, and we have pretty decent support from the administration. And of course, our dean is uh, Chris Anderson, who's a Métis scholar, who is just such a really assertive uh, and wise advocate for Indigenous studies in the academy. And he thinks a lot about institutionally what we need. He's not only thinking about the content of what Indigenous studies should be, but institutionally, what kind of resources do we need? How strategically do we do program building? So I've just never been in a place where I feel like it's such a um, it's such a meeting of all of the different parts of me. I mean, it's intellectually vibrant at the University of Alberta in Native Studies. It's there's a cultural presence. We've got relations with community, so I love it. And my work is flourishing. I mean, I was doing really well in the U.S. at all the different institutions I was at, but. I am able to do things up here. I don't think I would have ever been able to do down there. And then the Japan thing, 
That was a visiting professor gig that I had four years running. I taught a short course every December, I think from 2012 to 2016, uh, because I have American Studies scholar friends from Tokyo who set that gig up for me. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's great. I mean, I could talk more about that, but uh, I, I've really enjoyed that. The, the one main lesson I took from teaching in Tokyo, and a lot of the students are from Tokyo. I mean, Tokyo, I think, has, I think they have as many people in the Tokyo metro area as in Canada. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, I think so. I think that's what my friends told me. So they they think Edmonton's a village. <laughs> that's what they, said. they were over here visiting. They're like, it's a village. Um, but the main takeaway I had was these super urban Tokyo students. They I have them write a paper in my I teach a nature cultures class, indigenous nature cultures, which I teach teach a longer version of at the U of A. And I have students write on a paper about a relationship with a non-human. And uh, like students at Berkeley often wrote about relationships with their dog, or maybe they would do some research and think about human dolphin relationships. But the students in Tokyo, half of them choose what we would consider in the, uh, in what settlers would consider here as non-animate things. So I had students write about relationships with a train and the centrality of trains and their energy to, to um, everyday Japanese life. And what happened when the tsunami at Sendai happened and the trains stopped running, it was was very surreal to people to not have the regular rhythm of the train every minute and a half through their day. I had students write about relationships with spirits. So I learned a lot um, about expanding notions of human-non-human relations. And a lot of that did resonate with, uh, I think, what a lot of Indigenous people in North America think about. So that was really wonderful experience for me. Yeah, that I mean, that sounds so amazing to, to have had that experience. And I mean, working in a whole bunch of different places, you you get to find out, you know, what it's like institutionally, but also socially. And I'm wondering, you know, like it's, I get so many students and I'm sure you get students ask you the same thing who are considering grad work or becoming, you know, academics in some way as researchers or professors someday about potential struggles that they might have. And I think, you know, today it's going to be a little bit different than it was, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But were there any particular struggles that you had as an Indigenous person in those institutions? Uh, you know, I think it, uh, I don't have a lot of the stories of extreme difficulty in uh, graduate school and becoming a PhD as a lot of other in Indigenous people have that I've talked to, because I didn't come back to do a PhD until I was 32. Uh, I already had a flourishing career. I had a backup plan. And I really, I thought I was going to go back to doing what I had been doing just with a new area of expertise. Um, I do not recommend, I mean, it is a little bit better for Indigenous students in some field. This is not a lifestyle choice. Uh, so this romantic idea that I want to be an intellectual and pursue a life of the mind, <laughs> mm, I wouldn't do that. Uh, I would, I, I, this is, it's an opportunity. Come in with a problem that you want to solve. Again, you, you want to come in with a problem and you want to be in a program that can help you address that problem. But to just say, well, I'm not sure what field. I just know I want a PhD and a professor. I don't recruit students like that, to be frank. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know how to mentor students like that. I do not think this is a lifestyle choice. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know that I'm necessarily the best person to ask. I think, uh, I really do prefer having students um, that have had a little bit of work or life experience. I don't mm -hmm. think it's wise, for example, 
to be some prodigy and do an undergraduate degree and go right into a PhD and come out at the age of 28 or 26 or whatever. I do think it's better to go work or, or organize or work in community or whatever you're going to do, getting some kind of on the ground experience doing that work. And then, and then that will give you a more informed dissertation project or master's thesis project. Um, and, and you'll have some of those kind of community relations set up that will enable you to do, I think, research that is more substantive. Um, because, yeah, I, I guess being in the academy can be culturally difficult for people. Uh, it's easier if you're a little bit older and more self-confident and you have mm. something to fall back on. Don't put all of your eggs in the academic basket, I guess is what I would end up saying. No, that, that's really good advice because I, I was the same way. Like I had been working in community and activism before university. I worked full time during my grad work out of necessity. That was my career. I had to pay the bills, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it ultimately academics transitioned into a tool for me. It's like, oh, here's a place where I can do the research to talk about identity issues and how are we going to handle all of these things? And then it morphs into other ways in which you can contribute at the community level. And I, I think your advice around, you know, getting that community experience and those relationships and work is really important. I can't imagine having just gone from high school right all the way into my grad work, not having had like the life experience that grounds the work or research that you would do. Yeah, I think that's when, you know, I do see a lot because I'm on social media so much, right? I see a lot of really smart Indigenous graduate students spending a, a lot of time lamenting um, the way that they're treated, lamenting being the only Indigenous person in their program. That's the other thing I don't get. Um, people should really seriously consider going someplace where there's a cohort of Indigenous scholars that can work with them. I press, You can't eat prestige. Uh, and I will say I have been so much more intellectually and socially nourished at places like Arizona State University and the University of Alberta uh, than I was by being the token Indian at MIT or Berkeley. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I do, I think it's a mistake to go for prestige only. Um, I think you need to really examine the community and the individuals that are there uh, who are able to work with you. And that is one of the big mistakes I see younger uh, students making. And I get it. I mean, I get the mm -hmm. attraction to that. But having had the experience in radically different types of institutions, I will say I have flourished a lot more where there's more um, powerful and Indigenous people around in a dense presence of Indigenous people than being the token in a prestige institution, I, a very high prestige institution. Yeah, well, I mean, again, that's really good advice because we learn in all different ways and having relationships and, and working with people in the same, you know, in the same background and all of that really makes a huge difference. And, you know, in, in some locations, that's not necessarily possible, maybe because of low population numbers. But I think where people have a choice, like if I had to do again, I would probably yeah. look for you know, even just a small group of people, it makes such a huge difference having other yeah. people to work with and talk to. 
Well, I think it's also connected to the idea. I see everybody across the U.S., um, you know, and I'm learning Canada. That's part of the reason I joined the Media Indigenous podcast was so I could learn more about issues up here and not be so focused on the U.S. all the time because this is where I live now. But um, I see everybody jumping on the bandwagon to start a Native Studies program down there, and I don't think that's a really good idea. I think um, it's better to focus on developing Native Studies and a sort of cohort of Indigenous scholars in places where there are actually communities around because mm-hmm. I think those university community uh, relations are so important. And there's just some places in the U.S. US where there's just aren't a lot of Native communities around. So why would you attempt to do a Native Studies program there? What's going to happen is, is the people who get hired, the one or two, are going to be the token Indians there, mm-hmm. uh, and they're going to be lamenting their condition for the next 20 years on social media. So, <laughs> Well, let's move on to your CRC chair, because I've never heard of a CRC chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience, and the Environment before this one. Well, what happens with a Canada Research Chair is you uh, you write the proposal for it and you choose your title. So um, I think most of the titles you see for CRCs are uh, things that the scholars have chosen uh, themselves and that's been vetted by the university, um, the kind of focus area that they're willing to support. So yeah, the, the CRC... Um, It's not a done deal, but the universities are so good at providing you internal support for, it's the um, SHRC that funds my CRC, the Social Science and Humanities Research Council. So University of Alberta hired me, but then I had to go through the whole process of writing the proposal to get the CRC funded. Um, And that uh, supports, um, I think, most of my salary and research funds for me, so... Um, but yeah, we kind of discussed it internally, you know, what, what should the title be? What am I going to focus on? Uh, and it's a research heavy position with a, with a lower teaching load is basically what it amounts to. Well, that's pretty exciting. And, and for people who aren't, you know, academics or who don't study in this area, can you just talk a little bit about the techno science element of your CRC chair? Right. So technoscience is a shorthand for uh, science and technology. It's, you know, a term we use inside. Um, Because I have worked, uh, um, and the bulk of my work until the last few years has been thinking about the interactions between Indigenous peoples, land, identity, and various kinds of science and technology, um, that's what I decided to focus my research program on. And what that SHRC grant has enabled me and my colleagues to do at the University of Alberta is is develop a research focus area on Indigenous people, science and technology. So it's not just me. I also work pretty closely with uh, Jessica Kolopenik, who is a citizen of uh, Peguis, I think, First Nation. Uh, And Jess is a political theorist. Um, She and I are working really closely to develop what we're calling Indigenous science, technology and society. And so we've got a website, indigenoussts.com, if you're interested in that. Um, And so we're thinking a lot about uh, what are the implications uh, for Indigenous land bases, for Indigenous knowledge, for Indigenous identities of various kinds of genome and environmental technologies. And we're doing research around that. We are have also um, founded a uh, 
a summer internship for Indigenous peoples and genomics in Canada, I was part of the original faculty that founded a program, that program in the United States, uh, and it's called SING, the acronym. Uh, and this Indigenous training program is now in the U.S., New Zealand, Australia, uh, and Canada, and we've been talking with people in other countries. So um, that's also a major thing that we do. We're, we're thinking about training um, Indigenous uh, genome scientists, and then thinking a lot about what the cultural implications of that are, and, and we're doing that uh, because we have recognized that a lot of the genome science that has happened on Indigenous populations has been really extractive and colonial. And one of the ways to deal with that is to push back and to refuse that kind of research. Another way is to decide to be knowing collaborators in research. But for us, one of the most important ways to get good research done and to reject bad research in our communities is to actually have our own scientists asking questions that serve our communities and understand not only the science, but understand um, our culture and histories. And so that's also a, a major thing that we're doing. And Genome Canada has started funding that work as well. Well, that's really exciting and really on the forefront. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm like, I'll, again, make sure to post links to um, the websites that you mentioned so that people yeah. can follow <laughs> up. Um, and, you know, outside of the academic realm, you're also really well known as a public speaker, a media commentator, and a regular guest on our favorite Rick Harp's Media Indigenous podcast. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how important it is that Indigenous voices are also represented in public forums outside of the academic context. Yeah, I mean, I know it's not for everybody. And so I have, you know, people talk to me and say, I just can't be on Twitter, I find it toxic. Mm -hmm. You know, I, we all are, have different constitutions, right? I think if it's uh, more stress for you than it's worth, don't do it. There's, I, I'm, I believe that we all have different places that we can work. Not everybody has to work in the same place and in the same way. But yes, I do think that it is important for some of us uh, to be very public with the work that we're doing, because there is such bad information right mm -hmm. out there about indigenous peoples. I recently came across this term infodemic. People are using it a lot in relationship to COVID-19 saying there's a basically infodemic means there's like a, an epidemic of bad information. Uh, to me, the core infodemic is around indigenous peoples and colonialism. I mean, it all mm -hmm. goes back to colonialism, basically, and racial capitalism. That's what the big infodemics are around. <laughs> um, so I, in order to combat that, I think that that it's really good to have uh, indigenous voices, people that are comfortable being out uh, in, in public uh, to do that work. You know, I reach a lot more people on Twitter than I do with an academic article. I've got like 57,000 mm -hmm. followers now. So I, some people have way more than that out in on indigenous. Twitter. Um, the podcast reaches a lot of people. We get a lot of positive feedback from Media Indigena. Rick just does such a beautiful job with, with that. Um, I'm so grateful to be able to join him on that podcast. Um, you know, so I love the academic work that I do. And it's important, you know, the publishing and academic venues, but you reach very few people with an academic article, especially if it's behind a paywall versus being open source, versus what I can reach on social media by doing podcasts. And I do a lot of guest podcasting as well. And then the other thing I'll say is I've talked to Adrian Rich about this, who's, or not, I'm sorry, Adrian Rich, <laughs> the other Adrian, Adrian Keene. Adrienne Keene is a Cherokee scholar. Um, she uh, co-hosts a podcast, I think called All Our Relations with Matika mm -hmm. Wilbur. And, uh, 
Adrian and I have talked about our desire to learn in public. And this for me is a real feminist ethos. Uh, so you learn in public because you make mistakes in public, but what you're doing is thinking with everybody out there who I view as a co-thinker. So I think a lot about uh, thinking in public, thinking with people, whether they're intellectuals inside or outside of the academy. Again, some of my most important intellectuals are not academics at all. They're people in community who are brilliant. Um, and, you know, you make mistakes, sure, but say, oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Let me think about that again. This is also modeling good feminist praxis. So that's the other reason that I think it's important to be out in public. It feels, but again, for some people that feels too risky, right? Their constitution does not lend itself to that. And I understand that I'm not advocating that everybody mm-hmm. do what I do, but I think for some people, what I do could be a good model. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's another form of education. We can't presume that every Canadian is going to be going to university or presume that, yeah, yeah. you know, they have access to the same resources. And so, what, you know, what's our role in educating the public and having these discussions? And like you said, learning at the same time. I mean, because we really all are. I mean, my opinion today on something could be markedly different with new data that comes out next week. Yeah. And I think it's important, you know, so I I really appreciate what you do. And we're going to take full advantage of the fact that we have (laughs) you on this Warrior Life podcast today to talk about some really important issues. Often they're presented in a very controversial or confusing way, especially around Indigenous identities and the way in which like colonial ideologies around science and politics and race has impacted not only how society sees who we are as nations and communities, but also sometimes how we see ourselves. And so I kind of wanted to, you know, get right to some of the problems that people might have heard in the media, but they don't understand the context or the implications of these things. And one of them would be Joseph Boyden. I mean, he was literally the go-to person on Indigenous issues who purported to speak on really critical issues like murder to missing Indigenous women and girls, residential schools, and reconciliation. And for the listeners who don't have any background on Joseph Boyden, you would just have to Google. But he's a writer who claimed various different Indigenous identities at different times in different contexts, uh, from uh, claiming to be Ojibwe, Métis, Woodland Métis, Mi'kmaq, and even Nipmuc, and even claimed uh, after that to have a clan. Yet the, the records that, you know, media outlets like Aboriginal People's Television Network reviewed seem to show basically a Scottish ancestry and not Indigenous ancestry. Now, Kim, in Vice News, you pointed out that Boyden's understanding of Indigenous identity looked more like white settler understanding. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, well, I've seen this uh, pattern in multiple uh, what I would call pretendian cases. Not everybody uses that controversial term. <laughs> Daryl LaRue and Cersei Sturm call it race, racial shifting or race shifting. But um, yeah, the, the pattern tends to be um, privileging uh genetic or biological uh, ancestry, even if it's quite distant. Um, And so 
often it will be unattached to any particular people or they'll be guessing about the people that they might be descended from. Uh, whether it is actual ancestry that exists, uh, say, in uh, several hundred years ago in some cases, or whether it's alleged ancestry, it, in a sense, it doesn't really matter because one or two ancestors uh, several centuries ago is... Um, what I would say is it's fetishizing uh, a biological link to an unnamed person or people that are not necessarily affiliated with contemporary living indigenous communities. And so I talk a lot about that in my different academic publications. I sort of look through patterns of the way settlers uh, and Americans, North American, uh, Euro descent people have uh, viewed kinship. And there's a real emphasis on lineal biological descent. And anthropologists have looked uh, extensively at this emphasis on lineal biological uh, descent. Now, it's not that indigenous communities don't value that, but it's not the only thing that's valued. First of all, you have to have a link to a living people, right? To a people that exist, uh, somebody that you either have relations with or you have the capacity to relate with. Now, we talk a lot about in indigenous communities about the colonial imposition of blood quantum, the colonial imposition of Indian status, uh, of band governance, and in the U.S. tribal governance. All of that is true, and we debate that internal to our communities. Um, so we have discussions about uh, what constitutes a legitimate uh, living people, but we are perfectly capable of figuring that out internally. Um, we, so we look at uh, political affiliation, cultural affiliation, kinship structures, in addition to something like lineal biological descent. But for a lot of settlers like Joseph Boyden, like Elizabeth Warren, like the recent case of Michelle Latimer, all they have is some alleged distant ancestry that is not actually, um, it comes to, we come to find out when we do research, able to be identified with a, with a particular people. And of course, their whole lived experience and for multiple generations in their genealogies has been as white people. So well, I don't know if that, if I'm answering the whole question. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, because there's a lot of people who will be listening who don't understand the nuances or the implications. You know, a lot of our allies are out there trying to understand what's happening, you know, on social media, mm -hmm. why people are being called out. And, you know, one of the comments you made in your tweet about, you know, you made lots of tweets, and I really appreciate you sharing your insight, is that, I mean, you say that playing Indian is a form of racism. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, it's, I'm going to bring up um, a uh, visual that I've been using, actually. Um, and I talk about this in a lot of my more popular articles. Um, I have an article in High Country News on the Elizabeth uh, Warren um, mm -hmm. situation from January 2019, um, entitled Elizabeth Warren's Claim to Cherokee Ancestry as a Form of Violence. Um, but I also came across this uh, this visual on Twitter, and I'm not sure where it came from, but it, it's, it will ring familiar to anybody who's studied literature around uh, colonization and indigenous people. It's called the eight stages of white settler colonial denial. Uh, and the eighth stage is the self-indigenization. Um, a denial of the separateness of indigenous people and rights, and it's often based on attempts to reduce indigenous rights to human rights and to claim indigeneity, etc. So, I, you know, claiming indigeneity um, is a form of, it, it relies on settler definitions of uh, identity. Uh, it relies on 
partial settler definitions of kinship. It does not account for, because often pretendians don't understand uh, tribal citizenship rules or First Nation or band citizenship rules. It doesn't account for indigenous forms of community. Um, it doesn't understand histories of uh, forced out adoption, um, uh, the 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 theft of our of our children. It it just doesn't incorporate those kinds of histories, right? It's it's going particularly for uh, this notion that lineal biological descent matters. Indigenous people are often accused of being of fetishizing biology, but in fact, the people that are really fetishizing biology are the people that are making a claim based on some ancestor in 1640. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's more fetishistic than that, because again, we will consider lineal biological descent, but we also consider all of these other kinds of ways of belonging. So we tend to combine biological, political, and cultural forms of belonging into a very complex soup of belonging. And you know how any Indigenous person out there listening understands very well how complicated this stuff is. But non-Indigenous people don't tend to get that, right? Um, and so th they are res resorting to biologically fetishistic or racist forms of belonging. You know, the, they're basically resorting to a one-drop rule. That's not what we do. Um, I get that some to some people, it may look like that's what we're doing. But uh, again, we're always combining biological forms of belonging because we have kind of been made to. And nobody gets to live outside of colonialism. So that is something that we have to deal with. But there's often all kinds of pushback and political contortions that we go through to try and make belonging more complex and more um, in line with our traditional forms of doing kinship and belonging. Well, exactly. And, you know, sometimes it's really hard to explain to people just how bizarre of a concept that is, that you can point to an unnamed ancestor from the 1600s mm -hmm. with millions of relatives in between. Yeah. And now today say, you know, ta-da, I'm Indigenous. I can claim this indigenous experience and but when they have n like no connections, no experience, no. you know, lived or otherwise, and they have no connection to a living human being. Yeah, no, no, nor is a connection possible at that at that stage. So I often find when I'm pushing back against these cases, Latimer, Boyd, and Warren, you'll you'll get indigenous people, you know, coming on social media saying, "But I was adopted." We're not talking about somebody adopted yes. in 1960. You have a community you could possibly yeah. connect with. Now, is connection a foregone conclusion? Absolutely not. It's very difficult, right? Uh, but but it but it's a possibility. And what we have seen is indigenous communities have been very interested in finding their children. You know, they're now adults, but people that were adopted out that were taken from them. You know, siblings and cousins and aunts and uncles. They want to find each other. That's not what we're talking about. That is a completely different case than somebody who's pointing. To to an ancestor in the in the middle of the 17th century, and so this brings up the DNA testing as well. Um, sometimes people like Elizabeth Warren, you know, and she did; she took a DNA test. Those genetic ancestry tests that they take are again a manifestation of settler notions of kinship and the kind of kinship links that matter. What they will point to is probable ancestry. Uh, among certain populations on a continent, they do not point to a particular tribe or nation. Uh, so her DNA showed probable, quote unquote, Native American ancestry, you know, I don't know, 10 generations back or something. I don't remember how many it was, six to 10 generations, I think. That doesn't point to the Cherokee. So what you had is settlers coming back and saying, look, see, she wasn't lying. 
there's no indication that that was a Cherokee person at all. In fact, the, the, the data sets that were used, the reference data sets were from populations that were farther south in the Americas, you know, and everybody's related fine genetically, but uh, these tests don't point to that. Uh, Joseph Boyden was also rumored to have taken a DNA test, but he never released the, the results uh, when his controversy was happening. And I was thinking, hmm, that's interesting. Mm. Well, then I heard that uh, more recently that his results pointed to maybe a little bit of Greenlandic ancestry. But again, that's not what he was claiming. <laughs> Greenlandic ancestry is not the same as claiming to be Métis or Nipmuc or whatever else he was claiming. And so again, what this tells you is settlers think about indigeneity as a racial category. You know, we're all the same. It doesn't matter. I can claim this, that, or the other. It doesn't really matter because I have an indigenous ancestry. Uh, hello. There's thousands of indigenous peoples, capital P, throughout the Americas. Our nationhood matters to us. Our distinct mm -hmm. languages and cultures and landscapes that we are co-constituted matter with us. If you're privile privileging race in the form of a genetic ancestry test, you're telling on yourself. That's a settler definition of indigeneity. That's not our definition. So they tell on themselves all the time when they resort to those genetic ancestry tests. So, Well... I, there's so many problems with those genetic ancestry tests, but it's this whole concept that you can be a white person and do some ethnicity shopping. And I mean, look at even the commercials around, hey, Ancestry.com and, you know, all of the other ones where I did my test and wow, I found out I'm Scottish. And then all of a sudden the person starts wearing what they perceive to be Scottish clothes or, I oh, know, look, I, I found out I have Native American ancestry and now they have a woven basket sitting beside them as if our identity and culture and relations can be narrowed down to like shopping for ethnicities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, I could talk about the DNA stuff all day, so... <laughs> Okay, let me ask you a question. And I know we didn't, you know, talk about this before, but it's one of the things that came up, um, you know, during all of these controversies, controversies where there were some people who started sending in um, so-called genetic material to be tested to see where they came from. Um, and it wasn't even from human beings. So they were sending in, you know, the saliva of their dogs or the saliva of, you know, people in different countries. And, but they were getting the same kind from certain companies, they were getting the same kinds of printouts. Oh, you're 25% uh, Cherokee and you're 25%, you know, something else. And, and it really begs the question of just how scientific some of these companies are. Yeah, that story, I remember uh, that was in CBC, um, where the, the dog DNA was sent in and they said, and they, everybody was getting a mo like mohawk, first of all. <laughs> so that company is a bit of an outlier, right? That's the first time I'd heard of somebody tricking a company with dog DNA. I mean, I've known some of the people that have operated these companies and they, they're not doing bad science. They're just using bad definitions of indigeneity mm -hmm. to do their science that we don't all agree with. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that one was fast. So I don't know what was going on. If they were just not uh, testing the DNA at all, and they were just using some kind of canned response and actually just literally ripping people off. Mm -hmm. um, but even when you get a company that's doing legitimate science and not doing something like that, it's still uh, socially problematic. Mm -hmm. um, because again, they might be defining indigenous indigeneity according to this kind of one drop rule and looking at, you know, indigenous ancestry broadly as, you know, they're, they're looking to 
see if you have some genetic markers that uh, occurred in higher and lower frequencies among what mm-hmm. they call the founding populations of the Americas. But again, we know that there are thousands of different indigenous peoples throughout mm-hmm. the Americas, right? Uh, to put us all together into a group that you can therefore um, define according to Native American markers, that's very much racializing thousands of people into one kind of group. That's problematic, both technically and socially. And that's what even legitimate companies do, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That's what their the legitimate science does. So um, there are there are multiple reasons to look skeptically at this industry. And it's, it's you know, obviously, they're not all going to take some dog DNA and tell you you're Mohawk. Yeah. <laughs> Um, although that that can ha- you know that can happen I, so it's it is interesting to think about the lack of uh public um uh i think savvy you know you've got to mm-hmm. be a critical consumer and it's hard to be a critical consumer of dna technologies they're complicated uh and the social um definitions that they're using to do the, the science is also complicated so uh it's yeah it's really hard to be uh, an educated consumer in this industry well just the fact that it is a business that it's, you know, commercialized and that you could even possibly commercialize um, something like indigenous identity and to promote it that way, you know, all these commercials and, and even, um, you know, there's this general misunderstanding that, you know, you can just pay your hundred bucks or 200 bucks, get some kind of ancestry.com test, show that you're 25% Native American, and then take that to Indian affairs and say, hey, sign me up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like just this massive void between the reality versus what you're actually being sold. Yeah, again, because non-Indigenous people are privileging genetic ancestry so Mm -hmm. much. They have no idea what the Indian Act looks like. They have no idea what band membership looks like. Mm -hmm. They have no idea of the kinds of politics of of Indigenous belonging and family. I was at a um, national tribal enrollment uh, conference uh, back in 2003 uh, in in New Orleans. And so at that conference, it was like this for-profit kind of consulting firm conference, and I went as part of my research. But there were uh, several hundred tribal enrollment directors and staff there from tribes all over the United States. And there was a DNA testing company. This is in the early days of DNA testing. They're trying to sell tribes DNA tests. Mm-hmm. And um, so the tribal enrollment directors, I was sitting around at a banquet table with a few of them uh, one afternoon, and they were saying that they were already, and this is in 2003 at the beginning of the industry, they were already getting uh, people sending in their family tree DNA tests that showed that they had like 8% Native American ancestry and asking if they could get enrolled. Uh, there's like, what, 570 tribes in the United States? <laughs> Like, well, you just pick one, you just pick one based on what, you know, I mean, no understanding of how tribal enrollment works, right? And they're like, I don't know what to do with this. And the tribal enrollment directors, they don't understand the genetics. They are like, where is this coming from? And the people sending in the, the genetic test results don't understand tribal enrollment. The companies that are selling DNA tests don't understand the politics of indigenous uh, citizenship and identity. So you need people who understand both of those mm-hmm. things. If you're going to think about how in the world DNA might ever apply to uh, indigenous belonging and there and tribes and some first nations do use DNA tests, but they don't use the genetic ancestry test that Elizabeth Warren bought. They use a parentage test. Mm-hmm. So if we have, you know, a blood quantum rule or a lineal descent rule, right? If we've got a base role, we're trying to affiliate somebody within parentages in doubt, mm-hmm. you, you'll use a very simple parentage test. That is pointing to your bio 
mom or your bio dad or your bio aunt or uncle, right? It's Mm -hmm. pointing to a particular person or people in that community that you can establish a link with. That's really helpful for adoptees, for example, if they can get access to that. Uh, That's far different from saying, I have 7% Native American ancestry somewhere in the Americas at some point in time. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I I mean, uh, the one, the DNA testing for parentage, that's that's uh, about establishing a relationship, a biological relationship. But the other one, it really goes back to, you know, what you were saying about this being inherently racist. There's this mm-hmm. myth that there's just, just this one group, one race of Indians. Yeah. And if you can establish some blood descent to a generic Indian, well, then you just get to shop your tribe or shop your First Nation and yeah. you get whatever you think the perceived benefits are. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, exactly. That's crazy. <laughs> but I, I wanted to talk about another problem, you know, outside of all of this testing. And, you know, it, it relates to people like Joseph Boyden and Michelle Latimer, because she, you know, she also claimed to be Algonquin, Métis, and from a specific community of, of Gidigan Zibi, which they wholeheartedly rejected. But her records show that she was primarily French, Irish, and Scottish, but might have been able to have an ancestor from the 1600s. But the problem with these false claims or overblown claims to indigeneity is that she didn't just create a fallout for herself. So now she's been, you know, exposed and and people see her claims for what they are, but she hurt a whole bunch of other people. I mean, you know, Elder Claudette Commanda said, that it was an insult, it was exploitation and appropriation, and hurts all of the people that she worked with. And I think sometimes that doesn't get part of the conversation. Okay, so this person is exposed and everyone moves on. Well, what about all of the people now who are Native who are not going to be a part of this project because of what this person did? Or all of the other people seeking to rejoin their communities because of the 60s scoop or residential schools or forced adoptions or any of those things who are going to be looked at like a Michelle Latimer. And that's like a a lot of destruction happening around her. Yeah, I've seen this too on social media among some of the uh, people that I know who have worked hard to reconnect uh, with their communities, say maybe their parents decided to live away from the indigenous community they came from, mm-hmm. uh, and now their children are re- you know reconnecting and and they worry like it's already hard enough for me to go back and try to reconnect with my parents' community with all these you know Latimers and Boydens running around. Are people are they're just going to be suspicious of me? It's true. It do- I think it does mm-hmm. do that damage. Um, I do try to tell people, again, your situation is not that situation. Don't mm-hmm. doubt yourself for that reason. For sure, reconnect. I, I grew up in community, so I don't, you know, I can't say how hard it is to, to reconnect it. But it's hard even to con- stay connected when you grew up there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the politics can be really yes. rough, you know, and the kinship relations can be really rough. But um, yeah, I do, think, I, I do think there's a lot of uh, anguish that people... Uh, out there go over who are legitimately capable of and trying to reconnect to their community. That's really only a generation back, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, I mean, how, how many generations back is 1640? That's a lot of generations. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the people that they descended from may not even exist as a people anymore. I mean, peoples um, move mm-hmm. around, they coalesce into new peoples. I mean, indigenous peoplehood is dynamic, right? It's not mm-hmm. static. So... 
Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no. And, and those are all like super important points because at every turn, it's the actual Indigenous peoples that are hurt mm-hmm. when people do this stuff. And, you know, you've talked about this on your social media in terms of it's also occupying spaces, A, that yeah. aren't rightfully theirs, but there yeah. are other people who could be occupying those spaces. How many people could have been speaking yeah. about important issues instead of Joseph Boyden? Well, and people who have community experience. I yes. mean, but you know, it, it it goes back. I mean, it's it's not easy to be a public spokesperson, mm-hmm. and we know who the media goes for, right? Mm-hmm. They go for people that look and sound good, <laughs> you know, on audio and video. Uh, it, it's it, you're going to get a lot more calls when you've learned to be slick and savvy with the media, and that comes with practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so yeah, people like Boyden get called again and again and again, right? Or they used to, and, and Boyden betrayed himself in some of the commentary he. Would make once in a while, like he clearly had no clue what he was talking about, right? But because he's this very prominent, award-winning writer who's claiming to be indigenous, he's getting the opportunity to comment on things he had no business commenting on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's also about who does the media go to? They go, they're going to the the people that are palatable to them. And I think that's what uh, I can't remember who the writer was, but somebody was writing on the Michelle Latimer case, right? Mm-hmm. People would go to her because she's palatable to settlers, right? Her orientation to indigenous issues, the way she spoke, the way she reported and presented herself palatable to white people, the same with Boyden. You know, uh, some many indigenous people and the way that they look, sound, and move is not palatable to settlers, and they don't get asked about indigenous issues. So there is, I think, a reason uh, why disproportionately uh, pretendians might actually get foreground as indigenous people by settler media and institutions as well. Um, and yeah, but to go back to the pain it causes too, you know, some people, I don't think, were very integrated with uh, actual Indigenous people. I don't think Elizabeth Warren was very integrated. There were, um, I, there was talk I heard behind the scenes. People wouldn't go on the record, but a lot of the Harvard Native Harvard law grads. Uh, said she wasn't interested or involved at all in in their native law students' activities. Um, She really did not have relations with Indigenous communities. That's not really true of Boyden and Latimer, right? And so when people like that who were more integrated with with some Indigenous people, uh, when it's found out that they were faking, that's really hurtful Mm -hmm. to the people that had actual relations with them. And so you do get both kinds of people, the people who are totally unaffiliated and the people who, who, who did have relations, although they may not have been their own relations, right? They had friends, uh, they had, you know, colleagues who were actually indigenous, um, we have run into that in the academy as well. I mean, every year there's some indigenous, some person being outed in the academy is not really being indigenous. And we are left to deal with uh, mm-hmm. the ramifications of that indigenous scholars who worked with them, who knew them, who were friends with them. And it is really painful and difficult. And yeah, and and it's happening much more broadly than I think most people understand. It's not just one Elizabeth Warren in the United States or Joseph and Michelle here in Canada, it's actually very widespread in some areas. One of the areas, you know, where I'm from in Mi'kmaq, it's on the East Coast. We have a problem called the, you know, the so-called Acadian Métis who have been actively trying to undermine our rights, trying to occupy our spaces. And it's gotten to the point where the Métis National Council Um, and the Mi'kmaq chiefs of Nova Scotia had to actually sign an MOU and make it public and say, hey, 
these people aren't Métis. They've, we don't know who they are. The only people who are indigenous in Mi'kmaq are Mi'kmaq people. And it's up to the Mi'kmaq people to, you know, to decide these things. Yet there's still people in industry and awards Mm -hmm. and universities saying, well, we can't go beyond self-identification. So, yeah, there's so much there. I mean, there's these quote unquote Eastern Métis are really interesting because I think what you see with people like Elizabeth Warren um, is uh, it's different. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's the same, but it's also different. There are people who claim this for whatever strange personal reasons they have, right? Mm -hmm. Some myth in the family, some need to not just be white, uh, some needs probably subconsciously not to feel implicated in settler colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. There's all of that. But the, the Acadian Métis are the group that is, I think has been most explicit about claiming these identities in order to also access material resources. So there are people who claim these identities without necessarily wanting to explicitly access those resources. Although Mm -hmm. if you're claiming to be indigenous, so as not to feel complicit in in settler colonialism, you are putting yourself in a pathway of getting access to resources. Mm -hmm. There was a big debate about uh, around whether Elizabeth Warren actually benefited career wise from claiming to be Cherokee. Uh, I have no doubt that she benefited career wise, despite the Boston Globe's Mm -hmm. big investigative report that said (laughs) that she didn't. But those people don't understand how indigenous identity works anyway in the academy and what it gets you. I mean, that was not an indigenous person who did that investigative report. So yeah, the, but the Acadian Métis quote unquote are really interesting because I think from what I understand uh, just by reading the media, they have explicitly tried to access right, like fishing mm-hmm. rights or hunting rights mm-hmm. um, and, and indigenous identity claims would help them do that. Um, so that's really interesting and very cynical. And, you know, quite disturbing because you mentioned, you know, Daryl LaRue, he wrote a, a book about this, what he's calling white race shifting by primarily um, French Canadians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of the organizations that now have the word Métis in their title were actually white supremacist organizations yeah. who, who were haters of Native people. And then they stumbled upon, well, what if we just self-identify as Métis? Mm-hmm. No one can challenge that identity. And we can stop land claims. We can stop Aboriginal rights, we can be yeah. on the side of government. And that takes it in a whole new direction. It's actually very dangerous and can yeah. can be destructive in a different way. Well, I'm going to go back to that. And, and I can give you the PDF of this to this eight stages of white settler colonial mm-hmm. denial. Uh, so it breaks it down into, and you'll recognize all of these moves, you know, knowing mm-hmm. the literature. So number one, Indigenous people didn't exist. That's terra nullius, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a de- complete denial of Indigenous presence in a particular area. Number two, if they did exist, they weren't here. So that's that's still terra nullius, right? They, they didn't harvest or inhabit or travel in a specific area. Three, if they were here, they didn't use the land. That's the doctrine of discovery. <laughs> Four, if they did, they didn't deserve it. The great chain of being, right? Indigenous people don't have rights to their lands because they're primitive, right? <laughs> Uh, they're nomadic. They're not sedentary. They didn't cultivate it. They didn't develop the land for value in a capitalist system. Number five, if they did uh, 
they they lost it. Um, so they don't retain rights to their land because they they lost it. Number six, if they didn't lose it, it doesn't matter anymore. That's Westphalian sovereignty. Um, there was a Supreme Court case that was in the news uh, that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she she basically used the Westphalian sovereignty, right? The indig- indigenous sovereignty is is a part of the past; it no longer exists. Um, if tr- indigenous people do still have uh, rights, uh, we we need to move on, right? We don't need to redress the violation of indigenous rights. Uh, and if we can't uh, do if we can't do what we want, then we are you. So that's the final colonial move, right? At when all of this other stuff fails, when in when indigenous people are still here clamoring for rights, saying we want our land back, not dead yet, not disappeared yet. Well, then we're you. <laughs> and we're better indigenous people than you. Like settler colonialism is white supremacy is so clever. It keeps reinventing itself in new ways in order to take, right? So I, I have to hand it to them. They're very clever. Oh my gosh. <laughs> You know that that visual, and I've seen you tweet that visual before, uh-huh. and I was thinking, yeah. oh my gosh, that's so exactly. That's literally exactly. That's uh-huh. Exactly. The faces. And I know that like these pretendians don't realize what they're doing because they don't know their own history like mm-hmm. we know their own history, right? So I don't think everybody's just being a malicious liar. Mm-hmm. I do believe that Boyden and Latimer and Warren really believe the stories that they tell. And their parents probably believe the stories that they tell. It doesn't mean that they're true. And, and even if there is an ancestor in 1640, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it... At the end of the day, whether you're doing it longingly, innocently, maliciously, it all ends up being destructive. Yeah. I mean, it's still, it's still colonial appropriation at the end of the day. You know, if we were just to, to break it down for the listeners about, like, here's all the problems. Um, generally, what do you think are the core elements of Indigenous identity, keeping in mind Nigma are different from Haudenosaunee and they're different from Cherokee and Navajo and, and all the different groups. I mean, we have our own laws, customs, traditions, histories, practices, stories, dances. But in general, I mean, if it's not this racist one drop blood quantum notion, what do you think is the core heart of Indigenous identity? Uh, well, I think, again, left to our own devices, right? Mm-hmm. But we're not. We have to operate within a, a, mm-hmm. a colonial system that we need to navigate and, and respond to. I think relations are what is, mm-hmm. what's important. So this uh, new chapter I have coming out in this new book um, is entitled Identity is a Poor Substitute for Relating. Uh, and it's it looks at genetic ancestry and a property and property claims and things like that. So I I think um, and I talk in that in that chapter about I, I'm really becoming allergic to the word identity mm-hmm. and I do you I do use it but um, because it's you know it's shorthand for a lot of things but it I I feel like that that word um, as settler culture uses it really focuses on some kind of what it thinks to be a core essence of who we are, something that belongs to us. So our genome belongs to us. Our ancestry belongs to us. I mean, I'm speaking from kind of what I perceive Mm -hmm. as a settler cultural point of view. Those are my ancestors. Those are my genetic markers. This is my blood. These are my claims to make. This all lives inside me. It's all about property and ownership. Whereas indigenous people are saying, are you my relative? Who is your relative? 
Who do you relate to? And a relative can be biological, but but they, they're also social. And we sometimes make relatives who are not close biological relations, who mm -hmm. are just species relations, right? We make cross-species relatives. You know, we think about having relations that are not humans as well. So I think it, it really, at the end of the day, is about relations, being in relation, relationality. And I think a lot of our anguish and the work that we're doing and the thinking that we're doing is to try to promote relations in a system that promotes property, that pr promotes ownership. And it's a real struggle because those mm -hmm. things are really hard to reconcile, these kinds of ownership claims that settlers want to make. They want to own the land. They want to own your DNA. They want to own the right to identify no matter what you say. You know, you may want to belong to a people. It is the right of that people to say, no, you don't belong to me. That's a hard thing to take, but um, it, it goes. So anyway, that, that's, my, mm -hmm. that's my answer. It's not identity. It's about relations because identity is a form of ownership, belonging, um, and property that I just don't uh, think really gets to the heart of the way that we think about um, who we claim. Well, it sounds like a really good chapter. You know, I praise your book, Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science. And I think your title really encapsulates it all. And, and I'm wondering if you could just leave us with, you know, some of the things that we can find in this book for people who would want to go out and, and learn more about this. Yeah, I've got a, a chapter in there um, that's kind of recapping what historians of science have said about race mm -hmm. uh, and where the concept of race comes from, uh, how that uh, was so central to science in the 18th and 19th century, how it kind of fell out of favor in the 20th century, particularly after the horrors of racial science in Nazi Germany. But I then talk about how parts of racial science from the 19th century still exist in 20th and 21st century genome science. So then I move into a chapter on DNA testing companies and I analyze a few companies and their racial politics that were around in the 2000s. Uh, the big ones, 23andMe and Ancestry uh, DNA were not around back then, but, but a lot of the lessons that I take from earlier companies would still apply to the way these mm -hmm. new companies are working. I, I look at the work of genetic genealogists uh, who take DNA tests in order to fill out their family tree research and I look at their politics of whiteness. Um, I uh, end with a chapter that's forward-looking, uh, that's looking at how Indigenous peoples have pushed back and attempted mm -hmm. to govern genome research and the deployment of uh, genetic ancestry technologies. And that last chapter, uh, a lot of what I have proposed and thought about has kind of come to fruition in the work, in my work, in the work of some of my colleagues who are training genome scientists, who are rewriting bioethical rules according to Indigenous standpoints and priorities. So a lot has gone on since I uh, finished that book in around 2011. A lot has happened in the last 10 years where a lot of Indigenous thinkers are really coming to the fore. Indigenous scientists and bioethicists are doing a lot of work now to reorient the field uh, to be uh, more accountable to Indigenous um, people and histories of colonialism. And that's happening internationally too, not just like Canada, totally. US, but this is like Indigenous peoples internationally yep. trying to get a, a handle on this. Yeah, yeah, no. So I'm really happy with what I'm seeing. And I, there's a lot, a growing number of young Indigenous genome scientists out there who are doing really incredible work. Uh, and who also, some of them are, you know, no, they, they are connected to the cultures and languages of their communities. And they're mm -hmm. thinking with people in community um, about what genome research might mean for them, what kind of projects to refuse, what kind of projects they might want to consider. Um, and with your own people leading that work, that's really different than having a non-Indigenous mm -hmm. person come and, and do uh, research that might not be serving your community.
Well, that that's great. I mean, I, I can't thank you enough, Kim, for taking the time to, you know, talk about your background, all of these, you know, really complex issues. And, you know, it's, it's one of those hard conversations that is made hard by, you know, colonization and, and all of the colonial controls and influences. Um, but it's one of the most important conversations I think we need to have as uh, Native peoples through our nations and communities and, and tribes. And I really, I really appreciate you coming today and sharing all of your knowledge, experience and insight with us. I know we could talk probably yeah. for another 12 <laughs> hours on all of these things, but true, yeah. um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It was great to talk to you and finally meet you at and, least and, over Zoom. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Someday in person. Um, and thanks to all the podcast listeners for tuning into the Warrior Life podcast. I appreciate all of you who take the time to learn more, to do more, to lift Indigenous voices and take real action for social justice and earth justice. And like I said, I'll post all the links to the website and our publications. Um, they're just critical reading in this area. So please share this podcast widely amongst your friends, families, communities, universities, and beyond. Until next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. Well,